1: Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Isabel Moore and I'm a host on the channel. Today my conversation is with Elizabeth Cohen, the Howard Mumford-Jones Professor of American Studies at Harvard University, as well as the Dean of Harvard's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Today we're talking about her book, Making a New Deal, Industrial Workers in Chicago, 1919 to 1939. It was originally published by Cambridge University Press in 1990 and recently republished through Cambridge University Press's Canto Classic series in 2014. In the book, Cohen looks at how Chicago laborers' changing relationship to consumerism in the 1920s and to their ethnic communities shaped their ability to organize across lines of race and ethnicity in the 1930s and the aftermath of the Great Depression. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Isabel Moore, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Cohen about her book, Making a New Deal, Industrial Workers in Chicago, 1919 to 1939, originally published in 1990, but recently republished in 2014. Elizabeth Cohen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
1: Great. Great. Um, So I wonder, Liz, if you could begin by telling us a bit about your personal and academic background, how you became interested in the study of history, um, and how you decided to become a professional historian.
0: Okay, Uh, this is going back now, years. Um, I, I think I have to start with my mother, who was not a historian. She was a lawyer, but she loved history, and she raised me in a household where the explanations that she gave when we asked questions about why things were the way they were um, were often historical answers. So she, uh, she cared a lot about history. She was very interested in history. She dragged us from one historic house museum to another. We used to groan and say, not another one, but it certainly took. And um, I uh, grew up just very interested in history. I had a wonderful American history teacher in high school, a man named Eric Rothschild, who was very sophisticated about teaching history to high school students. I had him for several courses, but probably most importantly for AP U.S. History. And he understood that history was not about memorizing dates and names and battles and so forth, but it really was about debates over what happened, why it happened, how we can understand uh, how it happened. And he taught us with primary documents. He had us engaged in debates uh, over interpretations of history. He had us writing research papers with real primary research. And so I graduated from high school extremely interested in history and having a pretty sophisticated understanding of what it was. Then I went to Princeton, where I was a history major, um, just because again it was a, a subject I felt really comfortable with that I was curious about. Um, his, Princeton had a great history department, so there were some wonderful professors I could take advantage of. Um, but when I graduated from college, I wasn't ready to become an historian. In fact, I'm not sure it ever crossed my mind. I wrote a senior thesis that I. Enjoyed writing tremendously on Southern women. Um, and Princeton had wonderful primary sources for doing that, and I think that had a very big impact on me. But I was certainly not thinking of myself as a career historian. Um I started teaching at in the uh, middle school level, uh, in eighth grade and ninth grade history. And then I went through a period of about four years of working in museums. Um, I worked at Old Sturbridge Village and then at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco and at the Oakland Museum. And I was very engaged then with teaching history broadly to the public, first with young people and then with families and individuals who would come into the museums I was working at. And I um, became extremely interested in using sources beyond written sources, material culture, decorative arts, architecture, reading the city, if you will. Um, And at a certain point in that museum career, I got to a stage where I was becoming an administrator and hiring other people to be engaged with the content um, and actually developing the interpretations. And I realized that What I really enjoyed about my museum work was engaging with the material. And I was missing that, um, but I didn't have an advanced degree. So I thought I was at that point living in the Bay Area, um, running a program that the National Endowment for the Humanities was funding at something called the Cameron Stanford House along Lake Merritt in Oakland, connected to the Oakland Museum. And I, I felt like I needed to get a credential become more of a curator in a museum and engage with the content. So I went back to UC Berkeley thinking I'll just get a master's and um, then I'll go back into the museum world, but at more of the curatorial level than the administrative uh, office. And I just loved it. I loved reading. I loved writing. And I realized that those five years um, had been very good for me to experience different aspects, teaching, um, using new kinds of sources, uh, working with the public. But I really loved being in the world of history, research and writing. And so I decided to stay on for the PhD. And the book we're going to be discussing today, Making a New Deal, was my PhD dissertation at UC Berkeley.
1: Great, and why don't why don't you um, jump in and tell us how you came to your dissertation topic, um, how it changed in the process of becoming the book, um, and what what drew you to your study of Chicago?
0: So, when I went to graduate school, and I entered in the late 1970s, um, uh, the, the 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 world of history uh, interpretation and writing was very excited about social history, which was really the new kid on the block. Um, This, we called it history from the bottom up. What basically we were doing was recognizing that ordinary people had a very important place in the history that we told, and that a lot of previous history um, had focused much more on famous people, politicians, office holders, um, but not the experience of ordinary people. And social historians had really opened up a lot of, of new uh, territory. They had mostly worked in the U.S. history context on early America in the 18th century and into the 19th century. So early colonial history, New England towns, uh, then in the 19th century on early industrialization, industrial cities, early manufacturing. Um, But there was very little social history for the 20th century. So I was extremely excited about social history. It fit very well with the kind of work I had been doing in museums, where I was very interested in uh, engaging the public in what ordinary people's lives had been like. And uh, we, we we shared that through historic house museums and restored rooms and exhibitions that um, displayed the, the artifacts of ordinary people's um, homes and, and, and lives. Um, but I wanted to try to do something new with it, and I was particularly interested in the 20th century, and yet there had been very little social history. So when I went to sort of carve out what my area would be for my dissertation, I thought, why don't I take the the methodologies and the questions and the techniques of social history and try and do it for the 20th century. At that moment, 20th century history was very traditional. It was mostly defined by studies of decades. So we had histories of the 1920s, histories of the 1930s, um, or there were eras like the Progressive Era, the Great Depression, but there was very little sort of crossing of those decades And the subjects of the history we wrote tended to still be the traditional actors. Um, And we, in many cases, thought of the periods that mattered in the 20th century in terms of presidential administrations. So, you know, the Hoover era, the Roosevelt era, the Eisenhower era, the Truman era, the Kennedy era, but not in terms of larger questions uh, like industrialization for the 19th century. So I thought there was a lot of, very um, promising terrain there that I might contribute to. So that was one area. I wanted to bring social history to, um, more into uh, the writing of 20th century history. But even within social history itself, I saw possibilities for making a contribution. One was that the way that social history was developing was a very siloed way. We had labor history. We had women's history. We had immigration history. We had African-American history. People got sort of one identity and that created one school within social history, if you will. And yet I knew that people's lives and their identities really went beyond just one identity. What we today talk about very freely as intersectionality um, was made It was very obvious to me um, that that I really needed to get beyond those narrow confines. Um, And so it was important to me to try to find a topic where it would where I would be able to look at people both at their work, but also at home, in their social lives, um, perhaps in their communities as ethnics or Racial groups and so forth. So that was another area, another thing on my checklist, if you will. And finally, um, social history had focused on sort of the everyday, but there had not been very successful efforts at connecting that everyday with larger political um, events. So um, I thought that, you know, there really should be more um use of social history to interpret the big questions that historians were grappling with about change over time. And it had already become clear that social historians were being called out for not having enough politics in their versions of social history, that we had a sort of differentiation between political history, which was kind of what really mattered, and social history, which was, oh, this is what people's lives were like. And I thought that you know, if, if what people's ordinary lives really mattered, they had to matter on more than the scale of just the everyday, that there had to be ways that that, that, the, that, that ordinary world mattered for big politics. Uh, so I then set out to try to figure out what would be a topic where I could bring all of these um, ambitions together. And so what I decided to do was look for a moment where What people experienced on an everyday level um, in their social lives, uh, in their community lives, in their families, in their neighborhoods, would matter for politics, Um, and that brought me to the idea of finding a moment, and I decided a very good moment would be the 1930s, when The explanation for why things had changed politically could really be investigated through people's changing uh, ordinary experiences. And so, the, the the Great Depression, the New Deal seemed extremely promising to me because there had been some enormous changes as an American version of the welfare state really takes off through the New Deal, where for workers' lives we start seeing them participating in national politics, voting identifying with president and the federal government, and also creating successful industrial unions where that, despite many efforts in the past, had not really happened before. So I had this big political change in in people's lives, working people's lives in the 1930s. And I thought, can I explain this um, through looking at what their lives were like through the 1920s and into the Great Depression?
1: Great, and then you also um really came to looking at mass culture and the way that um workers' everyday experiences of engaging with mass culture and engaging with their own communities um sort of shaped their understanding, which I think in addition to the social and the political was a, a really interesting angle that you brought um to your study
0: yeah that's that's a good um reminder that I I was really interested in cultural history, particularly um, in its kind of everyday form, not so much high cultural history that intellectual historians might look at. Um, and that may have come out of my museum experience, where we were very much interested in well, when we interpreted the lives of ordinary people and what their cultural lives were like. Did they go to the movies? Um, did they have a radio? Did they have a TV um, Did they belong to clubs? Um, What was their associational life like? Um, uh, So all of that sort of broad culture had mattered to me in the work I did in museums. And I think when I went to dig deep into people's um, everyday experiences, I was on the lookout for that kind of thing. It wasn't just gonna be sort of ethnicity and race. Um, but also what were the other experiences they had that um, may take us more into the realm of popular culture?
1: Wonderful. So why don't we um, start by looking at um, what you found in Chicago in 1919, where you start your study. Um, You found that over the time period that you looked at, the way they interacted with culture, with their ethnic and neighborhood communities and racial communities changed. So in 1919, what was that picture for workers in Chicago? Um, and what did you find as you as you dug into the research?
0: Okay, I, I'll um, get to that in just one minute. I realized I didn't answer your earlier question about why Chicago.
1: Oh, sure. Uh,
0: and I do think that's important because I had never lived in Chicago before. In fact, I'm not a sure that I'd ever been to Chicago. I What happened was I went uh, in the summer after taking my oral exams as I was framing my dissertation to a summer program in quantitative history at the Newbury Library, which is in Chicago. And I do think that was the first time I'd ever been to Chicago. I grew up in the New York area. I was living, as I told you, out in the Bay Area. I have a New Yorker's uh, sense of the country and that it's pretty coastally dominated, mm-hmm. so I didn't know a lot of what's in what was in between, but I ended up in Chicago studying quantitative history, which I very quickly decided was not really my cup of tea, but Chicago was, and I started digging around to see um, what kinds of sources might be there because I was very struck by how the city still Seemed to be filled with um, ethnics and uh, racial issues and neighborhoods and all the good, rich stuff of social history was present, was there in the present. And I wondered, well, what kind of past might there be that I can work with? And I started exploring various libraries and discovered that at the University of Chicago, there was a gold mine of material that would be fabulous for the writing of social history uh, for the 20th century of Chicago, because University of Chicago was the home of the Chicago School of Sociology. And there were many professors who used the city of Chicago as their laboratory um, and had students fanning out, going to dance halls, going to movie theaters, going to department stores, walking around neighborhoods, writing papers about Um, uh, their observations. There also was a very robust WPA uh, program in Chicago. So during the 1930s, under the New Deal, there were WPA workers who were out there translating articles in foreign language newspapers, it was just a huge amount of very rich material. And, and the other, in addition to the Chicago School of Sociology, Chicago had one of the first schools of social work, the School of Social Service Administration. And the professors and the students there also used the city as a laboratory and did all kinds of master's theses and papers um, about uh, people on relief. And, you know, what the Catholic charities were doing and um, what it was like to work at the Hawthorne Works of Western Electric. And all of these papers and studies and master's theses had been saved and were in Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago. So there was a very rich collection there. There were a lot of oral history projects that had been undertaken. Um, One, for example, on Italians in Chicago, where first and second generation Italian immigrants had been interviewed in huge numbers. So I had access to tremendous material for Chicago. And so it dawned upon me sort of halfway through this summer that my God, Chicago would be a great place to look at how people's social lives during the 1920s and the early thirties shaped the actions they took in the middle of the great depression. Um, And so it just felt, it felt like I had stumbled upon an, an enormous um, collection of material that would really uh, was a privilege to work with. So I forgot quantitative history, except in the most superficial ways, and dug in deep into Chicago. So then I'm, um, you know, I go through many steps in terms of how to frame this this project. But um, I start with 1919 as really a contrast to the 1930s. This was another moment. The previous moment, when workers in Chicago's steel mills and packing houses, and in manufacturing plants that made um, equipment at, like, an International Harvester, because Chicago really was a kind of factory for America, there was tr- there was tremendous production pr- production in the city. Um, I th- th- this was a time in, in 1919 when these industrial workers had tried to unionized. It was coming out of World War I, where they had gotten certain benefits because of the needs for, of the war and war production, and yet the war was ending and many of these um, benefits were being, going to be pulled back. And so workers tried to get industrial unions to stand up to their employers and demand the continuation of many of the benefits they had had during wartime. Um, and so it was a very good counter to what I was going to see in the 1930s when historians, labor historians particularly had told the story of 1919, they told it, um, primarily as, um, a defeat for workers because employers had really come down hard on them and had repressed their efforts to organize, um, had used black strike breakers, for example, um, Blacks had come to Chicago during World War I to work in the, the packing houses, for example, in the steel mills um, when uh, other workers were off fighting the war. And um, employers took advantage of their presence and used them as strike breakers. So the story had been pretty much told as one of repression of workers. What I discovered when I looked at my Of social history sources, and I've delved deep into these workplaces and these neighborhoods and these communities, is that there was more going on than that, that there were internal reasons why workers didn't manage to pull off a successful unionization campaign. And one of the primary reasons is that they were very much segregated by ethnicity and by race, so that you had workers who spoke only Polish and others who spoke only Czech and some who only spoke Italian and they didn't communicate very well with each other. And they were were pitted against each other um, by their employers. And so the reason for the failure of that big, those big strikes in the 1919 to 21 period were as much that workers themselves were really not identifying beyond a very narrow um category of uh, defined in most cases by their ethnicity but those ethnicities mapped onto neighborhoods and onto community institutions so people tended to live in ethnic neighborhoods go to churches that were filled with people who spoke their same languages lived in the same neighborhoods and so the support that 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 striking workers got was very much within those confines of their own uh, narrowly defined communities. And so employers were able to really um win out and they used African Americans as strike breakers and that fed a lot of racial antagonism. So it was basically a big defeat.
1: Great. And so from fr- from the roots that you found and the way that these ethnic and racial communities were um were so bounded and so interconnected within themselves um, you looked at the 20s and found that there were some shifts that hadn't hadn't previously been explored that were happening in the 20s, um, and, and that that led into the 30s. So if you could tell us a little bit about um, how ethnicity began to change in the 20s, how mass culture played a role in the 20s, and how um, people's workplaces and employers' um, way of relating to workers um, was starting to open some things up in the twenties.
0: Okay, um, so as I learned more about these people's lives through those very rich materials that I had for the nineteen twenties, um, whether it was these master's theses or uh, student papers or uh, ethnic newspapers, uh, the papers of um, of, of companies that employed workers, I just had tremendously uh, exciting primary documents to work with, um, I discovered that there was a kind of contest that was taking place for people's loyal, working people's loyalty during the 1920s. And so I set up my three chapters on the 1920s around that contest. The first one I call Ethnicity in the New Era. And that was a deep dive into what was actually happening in these ethnic communities in the 1920s, coming out of those um, very tight ethnic communities that I said had uh, kind of undermined the ability of workers to cross those ethnic barriers to pull off successful strikes. So, you know, should we just assume, I asked, that, you know, everything was status quo and static in the 1920s and ethnicity just kind of um, continued to kind of move along in the same way? Well, no, um, because in fact, many ethnic community leaders were very concerned about what was happening to ethnic identity and ethnic experience in the 1920s. Um, Perhaps parents worked in these plants, packing houses and steel mills, and were still speaking the languages of their home countries, but their children were having a very different experience. Uh, They were going to American schools, they were speaking English, they were um, encountering other kinds of mass culture. And so there was tremendous concern about what the future of ethnic communities might be. And so what I, the way I paint the 1920s from this ethnic perspective is an effort on the part of ethnic leaders and ethnic organizations to really embed themselves um, more deeply in ethnic communities, but in a way that spoke to the new needs of these hyphenated Americans. Um, And so it became necessary to provide people with um, welfare benefits, with banking opportunities as they were sending money back home, um, insurance um, for when somebody got ill or insurance to cover a funeral when somebody died. Now these were all longstanding um, uh, responsibilities that many ethnic communities took on But in the 1920s, there was more money around, and there also was a kind of consolidation that took place. So rather than people identifying with a benefit society, a mutual benefit society from some small town or region in Italy, they might be pushed towards um, an Italian uh, benefit society. And They started to move out from the narrowest definitions of ethnicity to broader ones, Um, and so we 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 kind of see um, these organizations trying to adapt and trying to find ways of remaining meaningful and viable in the lives of these um, Polish Americans, what were called Bohemians, who often from from later from Czechoslovakia, um, Italian Americans. Try to figure out how to keep ethnicity really relevant and also how to hold on to the younger generation. And so you start to see these larger, more consolidated organizations that take on more of the practices of the commercial world. So these are not the sort of fly by night banks that might have existed at the turn of the century. They've become um, more regulated and had to adapt to sort of American systems. Um, uh, churches that might have, um, consolidated more so that, you know, you had, um, the Catholic Church in Chicago, which was, um, dominated in many ways by German Catholics, but now, uh, creating, um, alternative church Catholic organizations and, and churches who oversaw the Polish community, the Italian community, So that these were all vehicles to getting people to sort of identify their ethnicity much more broadly than they had in an earlier time.
1: Wonderful. And you you found, too, that um, as those um, ethnic institutions were were sort of changing the way that people thought about their identities, um, the same workers were beginning to interact with chain stores, with movie theaters, with radio shows that were attracting a broader audience. Um, Can you tell us about how mass culture played into this picture in the 1920s?
0: Um, so the next chapter, which is the, uh, the place where I do investigate the kinds of things that you just mentioned, I call Encountering Mass Culture. And here, what I learned um, and uh, argued was that mass culture played a growing role in the lives of these uh, working class ethnic Chicagoans. Um, And that was through going to the movies. The 20s, it was mostly silent films. Then the the talkies came in, um, starting off mostly in neighborhood movie theaters, increasingly in uh, larger movie houses, through the radio, which uh, people uh, had only uh, in small numbers at first, and they often listened to together. um, And increasingly through the purchase of Um, brand name goods, uh, and eventually in chain stores. But what I argued was that rather than the stereotype that we all thought was out there, that this kind of rise of mass culture completely deprived people of that old cultural identity and shifted them into sort of modern America that when, you know, you no longer went to the corner store, uh, which was run by an immigrant grocer, you went into the chain store or you turned on the radio and you automatically heard, you know, Amos and Andy, or you, um, you know, uh, went to the movie house. And eventually when there were talkies, you heard it all in English. Actually, it was a much more gradual process. And for most of the 1920s, that experience of encountering mass culture was very much mediated by the ethnic community so that the first brand goods that you probably bought, you got from your ethnic grocer. It didn't feel like something that was. Uh, very foreign, and in fact, chain stores were very slow to go come into ethnic neighborhoods because there was a lot of resistance to them. When you turned on the radio, you didn't automatically get sort of uh, the big network radio shows. Um, early radio, through most of the 1920s, was very localized. That's what the technology could deliver, and many of the programs were very locally based. So they might be uh, local church services. They might be your local labor union. It could be your ethnic uh, society doing a program. Um, so you you didn't necessarily experience uh, mass culture through the radio as wrenching you out of your ethnic experience. And the fact that, you know, very few people would have a radio meant that uh, people often listen together. So someone might have a radio and we see pictures, photographs of You know, the whole block, sitting around it, listening together. This happened, of course, when the television was introduced as well much later. Um, Families listened together. So rather than it being an isolating, some had argued previously kind of um, atomizing uh, experience, it could actually be a communal experience to listen to early radio. Um, And when it came to movies, particularly in the era of the silent movie, the... Voices you were hearing were not the voices of the actors in the film. They were the hoots and yells and responses of an audience that you were part of, speaking in many cases in your own ethnic language. Um, And so mass culture was very gradually introduced into people's lives and did not sort of take them out of that previous sort of experience. The big exception to this were African-Americans who lived in fairly isolated places, particularly in the Black Belt of Chicago. And um, there were not the same kinds of robust uh, institutions that permeated the ethnic world in Chicago in the African-American world. First of all, in terms of having local storekeepers, Blacks, often did not have the capital to open stores. Um, uh, they did not have the access to 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 put on the radio programs. There often were not movie theaters. Um, there were other kinds of popular entertainments, of course. Um, but what happened was that for many African Americans, mainstream mass culture became um, a way for them to feel that they were Uh, getting a better deal than if they went to the store of a Polish or Italian or Jewish grocer in their neighborhood, which they might have experienced as being rather exploitative and not one of their own. Um, And so for African Americans, mass culture became a kind of vehicle of racial identity and expression in a way that it wasn't for many of these ethnic groups.
1: Wonderful. So you have these these different groups, ethnic groups, African-American workers living in neighborhoods, having experiences in the 20s. But then they're also often working together Um, and in their workplaces. You found in the 20s that there were some shifts happening there in terms of employers attempts to create a welfare capitalism um, within their individual workplaces. How did the shifts in um, the workplace also influence what was happening in the 20s.
0: So employers come out of this uh, period of great strikes from 1919 to 1921. Uh, They're trying to put American manufacturing back on um, a solid foot. Um, They want to try to calm things down. It's also a period of great... uh, expansion in American manufacturing with the the introduction of a lot of new technology with um, the assembly line and so forth. And they make concerted efforts to um, really win workers' loyalty. Um, They have experienced a lot of um, worker um, mobility, workers quitting. Uh, They themselves want some flexibility. They don't want to have to employ workers, for example, all year round when they may only be producing for nine out of those 12 months. They'd like to let workers go, but they certainly want workers available to them when they need them, and they look for strategies for keeping that uh, workforce loyal to them. And they implement a whole series of programs that we refer to as welfare capitalism, in that they were strategies to try to keep workers um uh uh in the employer's sort of pocket if you will so there were efforts to have um work councils where there could be uh employees could have some say they didn't have actually great influence on co- on company policy but there was an effort at that there were um insurance benefits that were offered to workers to try to keep them on the job that you, so that you would have some incentive to stick with your employer. Um, There were uh, stock option programs where um, employees were encouraged to buy stock, which would also keep them invested, not just in the stock, but in their employers. Um, So these were lots of, of interesting programs that were trotted out in efforts to, or on employers' parts to keep workers um, connected. They did a lot of social activities. They had clubs and outings. They would take workers in buses out to, to the country. But what happened was that employers uh, said that this was their intention, but when it came down to it, they often didn't fall through. And so, yes, they might want workers to stay loyal. But then if they had a drop in orders, they, you know, kissed them goodbye. And so what I argue happened is that they raised expectations um, about what uh, welfare capitalism could actually be. Um, but they didn't deliver because they let the bottom line often trump, um, you know, that 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 promise and that commitment. Um, And so it contributes, I argue, later when we get to the 1930s to creating a set of expectations and standards that workers hold out for what uh, what they call a moral capitalism should actually look like, which would be fair and um, giving workers a lot of um, reason to stay with an employer, uh, to be loyal because they were going to get the kind of security in life. That they felt they really needed and deserved. So uh, the appetite is fed through the welfare capitalist ideas of the 1920s, but the, the lack of real um follow-through um leaves workers quite frustrated and does encourage them to see uh to seek alliances across those ethnic boundaries that had been so high and difficult to transcend in the 1919 to 21 period. Partly it's because these workers are younger. They are speaking English more. They're having more common experiences. Mass culture has contributed to that because they are all listening to the radio and some of the same radio programs. They're going to the movies and having some common experiences. And when some of these new um, management strategies come in, and employers are quite experimental in the 1920s about uh, pro- new production processes and procedures that are trying to try to basically speed up production. Workers realize that their ability to resist many of those innovations depends on collaborative uh, effort and agreeing among themselves, for example, that they are not going to uh, work at a certain level, but that they'll have an agreement that. Um, X is enough for us to make within an hour or within a day. And so they start meeting each other and communicating across those ethnic lines. And so by the time the Depression hits in the late 1920s, you have a very different workplace than you had um, in 1919.
1: Great, and that sets us up for for the shock of the Great Depression and the economic changes that workers of all ethnicities and races were were experiencing. Um, So with that groundwork laid of the changes that had happened during the 20s and the shifts of the ways that workers were relating to each other, um, what then did you see happening as the Great Depression hit and um, into the 30s? Well, the
0: first um, important experience, I think, that ordinary working people had was that they discovered that many of the supports that they had depended on in the 1920s, some of which were from their ethnic communities, the banks that they used, the benefit societies that they had insurance through, the welfare agencies that they had looked to in hard times, if somebody was sick or unemployed, the churches that um, had had charities that that bailed them out when they needed it, that a lot of those institutions were under tremendous pressure in the Great Depression, and particularly in this early period where there really was no other safety net, um, and so they turned in the direction that they were used to turning. And they were one of many looking to organizations and institutions that were really very stressed and incapable of coming through. So that was very traumatic um, and raised the question of where do you turn? So that's on the, the side of the community institutions. Welfare capitalists had been telling them, you know, oh, you know look to your employer. Um, you know, we have these benefits. Uh, you know, you can if you stick with us, you, you get some kind of health insurance, you can uh, own stock um, and and that will give you money to retire on. But then all of a sudden the depression hits and these employers cut back. And, you know, the first thing out the door is, you know, forget, let's forget those benefits that we promised and they lay people off. And so the welfare capitalist who had, you know, been a kind of uh, support to the extent that it had worked is not there either. So people start casting around for, you know, where are they going to get help? And what I argue is that over time, and this does take time, um, they start looking towards two new kinds of institutions that had had not been meaningful in their lives before. One is the federal government, and the other are national uh, industrial unions, and those are formed under the umbrella of the CIO. So if we start with the uh, federal government, let's talk a little bit about the kind of relationship to government that that these working people had before the depression hit. In many cases, it was really quite minimal. Some of them weren't even citizens. Um, To the extent that they were citizens and they voted, They often had a very localized sense of uh, what mattered that was often defined by the precinct. And they looked to the precinct captain uh, who might deliver a Thanksgiving turkey, who might be somebody you could go to if your kid needed a job. They had connections to City Hall um, and so forth. So government was something very immediate. When they thought about the federal government, they often thought in terms of very negative things. For many of these ethnic communities, for example, the federal law of prohibition was considered a terrible thing in the 1920s. And then when they thought about the federal government, they thought of something that was really encroaching on their cultural lives. That You know, many of these were cultures where the local saloon mattered, where the beer garden mattered. Um, Italians who made, you know, a wine at home. And all of a sudden, this is becoming criminal activity. Um, and so they had pretty negative ideas if they had any idea of the federal government. But in the midst of this depression, when the falling away of many of the supports that they had counted on in the 1920s, um, they start arguing that actually, some of the things that they have Experienced in life, such as some of them were in World War One. They did military service. They paid taxes in some cases. Um, they, um, you know, they voted when they voted when they were citizens, and that they actually should get help back in return that they had earned that right to be protected. And so, when uh, FDR, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, becomes president, and he starts to create the New Deal and creates programs like. Um, the works programs, uh, the protection of people's savings through um, uh, the, the various programs that the FDIC that protects uh, the banking, um, banking accounts or ultimately when Social Security comes in, um, when the National Industrial Relations Act is passed and gives workers the right to organize and then later the Wagner Act, they start seeing the ways that the federal government can really work for them um and in contrast to you know our assumption that um pe- americans sort of don't want to be on the dole and are embarrassed we're embarrassed and ashamed to be on the dole i didn't find that i saw letters to franklin roosevelt and eleanor roosevelt and to harry hopkins and to many of the people who work new, new deal of working people saying you know what um, I'm an American and I've contributed to this country and I'm in big trouble now and I expect you to help me um, it's really over time and I show that by the late 1930s actually the federal government starts to send messages you should be embarrassed you should be ashamed uh, the dole isn't good as they start to pull back because there is this long-standing kind of ambivalence about the federal government even on the part of those who are creating a stronger one but that it's, I don't see that within workers' culture. I see that, and this is what I mean when I say that workers play a role in making the New Deal. They really see this as something that can help them, and they see their vote as a vote for it. And um, they start to identify Roosevelt as a a, a figure who is really a very paternalistic figure and who's going to watch out for them. Um, So they very much Um, you know, he personifies the federal government in a way that is not at all alienating to them. So that's on the one hand that they start to move towards uh, identifying and making demands, if you will, on a stronger federal government. On the other side, and on industrial union side, um, they start recognizing that they need each other. They get licensed under the National Industrial Relations Act to actually form their own unions. There are very effective union leaders who emerge out of the CIO, many of them communists. Um, And I argue that whereas many of these workers in the packing houses, the steel plants, and an international harvester um, are very strong union advocates, in most cases they are not communists. They've actually they actually come to believe in this moral capitalism um, that grew out of the expectations of welfare capitalism in the 1920s. They see that act that what what employers need to do is fulfill those expectations and promises that they had made in the 1920s. They do believe in private enterprise to the extent that it distributes its rewards broadly.
1: great so so we're really seeing a different picture at this point that workers have developed different expectations they're appealing to the federal government and to the democratic party and then the work that they're doing in unions and their their openness to working together across lines of ethnicity and race in unions um, is a real contrast to what you found in 1919. So can you tell us more about in the in the mid to late 30s, um, the power of unions, what was happening that was different mm-hmm. amongst the workers in relation to their workplace and to late the unions? So,
0: you know, we, we saw that over the course of the 1920s, workers were starting to be more collaborative in their workplaces as they resisted some of these um, disciplined strategies of employers. So they're starting to make those connections. They're also increasingly second generation, as I said earlier. Um, they are having common experiences through radio, movies, um, uh, store goods, things that they buy in the marketplace. Uh, increasingly chain stores do actually push their way into working class ethnic neighborhoods because many of those small storekeepers Um, can't survive in the context of the depression. Um, But it doesn't happen um, naturally. The CIO is very shrewd about encouraging what I call a culture of unity. So they recognize that a lot of the ingredients are there. um, And they also understand that they don't want to end up in the same place they were at the last effort in 1919-21, and that they really need to work very constructively to build this cross ethnic, cross racial, and that party is even more controversial, um, community of workers if they're going to effectively take on employers and win collective bargaining and the, um, the gains that they seek. And so there are really very obvious strategies on the part of uh, the CIO and its member unions. Uh, in the case of steel, it's SWOC, S-W-O-C, Steel Workers Organizing Committee, packing houses. It's the packing house workers organizing committee and, and so forth. Um, there are, if they start off as these organizing committees, they ultimately become um, full unions in themselves, but they recognize they have to really build that that culture and and build trust across those lines. People still are living in um, community neighborhoods that have ethnic overtones. They're going to churches that have those those longstanding connections. And so they they do things like um, uh, compete for workers' loyalty, as we saw happening in the 1920s, by having their own social activities: bowling leagues, um, family dinners, outings, um, rallies. Uh, they make radio programs. They make very explicit efforts to create a common culture of the union. Now, there are winners and losers in that. And, and one of the things I talk about is that this, um, the, the, the strategy that the unions sort of um, engage with uh, tends to be a fairly male-oriented one. So that women, uh, even though they are working in packing houses and in many other workplaces in Chicago, are tend to be um, dealt with as part of women's auxiliaries and that the male head of household is really the union man. And, um, and so women who are very active in many cases in the union efforts find themselves somewhat siloed. Um, in female positions in this new culture of unity and the new union culture. Um, And part of that is because when the depression hits, uh, in many cases, the workers who suffered the most were men who were in the highest paying positions. Uh, There were many families where it was the man who was unemployed and his wife and children who went out and were able to scrap together uh, scraped together sort of low-paying jobs, um, perhaps not on a regular basis, but they kind of kept the family going. And for many men, this was psychologically extremely difficult. Um, and so when when the union sort of got some, um, some strength um, and they create an ideal world of uh, organized labor, Uh, They actually put the man back in the center of that family and in that in the center of that organization Um, and that it takes a long time, really many decades for women to get the kind of influence and power in unions that many of them sought and, and wished for.
1: Wonderful. So it's such a complex story over time, and you managed to weave together so many strands of the cultural experiences workers were having, experiences at home, in the workplace, and and how that um, kind of gradually shifted over time. What can you tell us, um, looking back now, three decades, at when you worked on this book, when you did this research, um, to now what can you tell us about sort of the conclusions that you, you came to um, the, the big takeaways from this, this picture that you've painted for us?
0: Well, I um, I'm first of all, just so happy that people are still reading the book and learning from the book. And that's the, the biggest gift you could give to an author that um, uh, her book has survived decades after it was written and is still uh, meaningful to its readers so i'm very feel very grateful for that um I, i admire it still i have to say um i i look at it and i am thrown back very quickly to those hours and hours and hours spent in the archives and um i'm kind of impressed and amazed at what I once did uh, in that. Not that I don't do research like that now, but um, as a dissertation student, that's all that's all that's on your plate and you are able to give it um, many, many hours in a way that now I have a lot of other um, competition for my time. Um, I think that there are um, changes that have taken place in the decades since I wrote this book. Were I writing it today, I probably would be um, under some pressure to think less narrowly about workers' experience being contained only in Chicago. There might be, um, uh, I might want to think about the Chicago workers' experience of the 20s and 30s in a larger international frame, both comparatively to other places, but also the influences that they uh, felt that had origins outside the United States. Um, and that would be very fruitful to do. But, you know, I think we have to recognize a book gets written at the time it gets written. And I and, you know, you you, you I was already taking on um, enough in that at the time in trying to integrate the social and the political to break down those boundaries of different kinds of social history, as we discussed earlier, Um, But I do think that there would have been a price to pay were I to look at, for example, the influence that Italian fascism had on the Italians in Chicago in the 1930s, which would be one way in which I might've internationalized this book. I, it would have meant I wouldn't do other things. And one of the things that I did do is I created internal comparisons within Chicago that allowed me to dig deep into um, workers' experience at a very micro level. So, for example, when I'm talking about packing house workers, I was able to compare what happened at Swift to what happened at Armor, where one of them was much more effective as a welfare capitalist than the other, and it did play out in workers' responses in the 30s. When it came to steel workers, um, I... Uh, had another a case that uh, I didn't mention in our discussion of one steel plant in um, in South Chicago called the Wisconsin Steelworks, which was actually part of International Harvester in a very isolated part of, southern, of the southern part of the city, um, which was extremely welfare capitalist in its orient management strategy, um, where workers in order to work there needed to live in the neighborhood. Uh, So the employer um, reinforced a very tight relationship between the the community and the workplace where African-Americans who could not live there were not employed because it would have meant a a very difficult, if not impossible trip. So they indulged the the sort of prejudices of those workers and didn't force on them um, the hiring of African-Americans. Wisconsin Steel was a very different work and community experience than if you worked for the for the South Works of U.S. Steel, and in return from that very paternalistic a uh, kind of welfare capitalism, the uh, management of Wisconsin Steel managed to keep its workers happy with company unions, basically, which were not real unions, but they were you know representatives. That who reported basically to management and you know brought little uh, advice and suggestions from the rank and file. So because I was keeping my focus on the city of Chicago, I was able to see a lot of variation within the city and get closer, I think, to um, the complexity of working class experience. That there wasn't just one big Kind of experience that everyone had, or it didn't break down only between um, sectors of the economy, but that there was variation within that that told us something about which factors were more influential than others. So it's trade offs. And, you know, I I definitely would have written a very different kind of book today. Um, I wrote it as a dissertation that I filed in 1986 and as a book that I published in 1986. 90. And that did go through, I wrote a new introduction to it, um, at a much more recently. Um, and I take note in that new introduction of some of my sort of changing relationships to the topic. But, you know, I think it's a book that still stands and has something to contribute. Um, uh, and I'm still proud of it.
1: And as I I shared before we started recording, um, I'm I'm reading it in in graduate school classes now, and it's definitely continuing to inspire um, those of us who who look at it. So, um, it's a, it's a wonderful contribution to helping us think about all these different factors that are going into some of these big picture developments that you spell out.
0: And I do think that you know my effort to broaden the definition of what political history is, I think um, has led to a lot more work like this, which uh, is is a very positive development, I think. You know, as as I expressed earlier, there were these very rigid definitions of social history, political history. Political history was really about elections and office holders and voting and uh, political organizations, um, and we didn't see the political experience that ordinary citizens have as part of political history. And that was probably, the, I think, the most important contribution that I made. And I think there are some, but there've been, there's been wonderful work since making New Deal to show how rich that, 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 that field can be
1: and And you, of course, went on to um, to pursue research that continues that conversation in a different way and looks at um, consumerism and the the role of consumers um, and that That brings us to um, something else i 'd like to ask, which is what are you working on now what 's what 's next on your plate
0: well i I am almost finished with a book that I have been working on for too long. Um, being a dean here at the Radcliffe Institute doesn't leave me as much time as I would like for my own research and writing, but it's a very different kind of book, uh, in some ways. But I think there may be some common um, uh, commonalities uh, with Making New Deal if we if we dig deep enough. Um, it's a book I've called. Saving um, America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America and the Suburban Age. And it's a book about uh, the efforts over the second half of the 20th century from 1950 to say 2000 to, um, to renew American cities, to redevelop American cities, to keep them viable in the face of the huge explosion of suburbia. And the way I go about this is a very different Strategy that I took in making New Deal, and that I took in my next book uh, after Making New Deal, A Consumer's Republic: The Politics of Mass Consumption in Postwar America. This this third book um, really uses the life and career of one person, a man named Edward J. Logue, who was an urban planner, urban developer. He was actually a lawyer by training, but he worked in the 1950s on the redevelopment of New Haven in the 1960s, on the renewal of Boston, and then in the 1970s and into the 1980s. um, He was first head of a very powerful state urban renewal agency called the Urban Development Corporation, which was set up by Governor Nelson Rockefeller. And then his last big job was a project in the South Bronx to try to bring back a part of New York City that really was struggling terribly. And so I'm looking at it, one person's uh, work uh, over a long period of time. Um, But some of the concerns that I had in Making New Deal, I think, are still there. Um, One of the reasons I was attracted to taking this very different approach was that I am still interested in the question of agency. And that was very much behind Making New Deal to look at how workers had agency. In making um, the American New Deal, the American welfare state that emerged in the 1930s, I'm looking here at the policymaker's um, agency and what he or she is in a position to do and not do. Um, so, in some ways, it's sort of history from the top down in contrast to history from the bottom up. Um, but I'm very interested in how he interacts with many other constituencies. And most importantly, I want to really take on this view that many of, of us have that urban renewal was one terrible thing that never changed from 1950 to today, um, but in its heyday ended in the mid-1970s. Um, and that there was, you know, was one sort of awful thing after another, um, a kind of Robert Moses-like. Um, approach in contrast to the much more sensitive, sensible approach of a Jane Jacobs, for example. And my, my goal here is to kind of complicate that story and not to see this as such a black and white Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs, but to recognize that someone like Ed Logue worked in this in this field for quite a a long time, and that he learned a lot on the job. His approaches changed over time. There was a lot of experimentation, and that there were some aspects to um, these efforts to revitalize American cities in the post-war period that are actually quite admirable, particularly that the federal government, for example, was very invested in that project, um, rather than a situation today where it's very much what the private market and what private developers might decide we should be doing. So I'm trying to kind of take a new look at those efforts um, in the post-war period, but to use this arc of of Ed Logue's life as a way to draw my readers into the experience.
1: Sounds like another interesting project. Thank you so much for being on the show today. i really appreciated hearing your thoughts on on creating this book that we've discussed today um thank you so much
0: thank you so much Isabel. i really enjoyed
1: it liz you've been very generous with your time thank you for discussing your book with us today and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of new books in history this is your host Isabel moore